This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1844, Samuel F.B. Morris sent the first message over the telegraph, What Hath God Wrought? Within 20 years, his invention would be used in the Civil War to revolutionize the conduct of military operations, allowing instant communication between political and military leaders, bringing news to people on the home front in hours instead of days. Today, we have seen in the last 20 years another communication revolution in the form of the Internet. It's affected every aspect of life, not excluding study of the Civil War. Today we'll explore what God hath wrought in the new world of technology in the Civil War with Dmitry Rogov, creator of the weblog Civil War Bookshelf and leader of the McClellan Society. Return with us in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next Next auction. Are you a health-conscious, motivated mom who wants to work part-time from home? Do you want to enhance your family's income, get out of debt, experience financial freedom, create a flexible schedule, set your own hours? These benefits are available to top performers of this 34-year-old, solid, stable company. www.lisastafford.com Achieve personal wellness goals and make a difference in the lives of others. Receive coaching from the top achievers at this company. For more information, go online, lisastafford.com. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, disclaiming any responsibility on behalf of the university for anything that might get said in the next hour.
My guest today is Dmitry Rogov. Let me just check the open line. Dmitry, are you there? Yes, thanks for having me. Glad. I'm delighted you can be here. I'm going to let you hold for just a minute while I talk about uh, an issue that comes up every now and then in the world, and actually this relates to what we're going to talk about. In the world of the Internet, uh, the question of the free lunch, who pays for the Internet? In specific terms, who pays for Civil War talk radio? As people have occasionally asked me that. My department chair, for example, wants to know what's going on here. <laughs> and the answer is I'm not really sure. I know that you, the guests, are not paid. The audience is not paid. The host is not paid. We do this because we're interested in the war and in having what are hopefully interesting conversations about our national past. But occasionally the world of economic reality intrudes and the phone company wants to get its bill paid or something like that. And while I'm not directly uh, dunned by them for that, there are expenses connected with the show. And if listeners are interested in helping out and seeing that Civil War Talk Radio does remain part of the World Talk Radio lineup, they have an opportunity to contribute to that by going to the website from which you uh, listen to the program. And uh, listeners, there you'll find a button that says Make a Donation. If you do that, you can donate through PayPal. You do not need to have your own PayPal account. Uh, the money ends up with Civil War Talk Radio. It's not, uh, if there's any huge excess of it, I'll just take it and leave the country, but that's highly <laughs> unlikely. More likely, we will hopefully get enough to contribute to the phone bill. If there's some vast overage, we'll find the Civil War Preservation Trust or other useful organization and give some of it to them. So, listeners, if you uh, can see your way to helping out with 50 cents a show or some similar amount for the past 40 shows, uh, we'd certainly be grateful here. But let's move on to uh, our guest today, Dmitry Rogov. Dmitry, you and I have not met. Uh, most of the guests I have in the show are people I run into at a conference or somewhere along the line. Uh, but we have just met in cyberspace. Yeah, and that uh, represents a risk on your part because I, I could be some sort of obnoxious troll with a horrible voice and terrible radio manner. So I, I do appreciate your um, your sense of adventure here. Well, and I, I'm relieved to hear the first words from you because you're absolutely right. On the occasions when I do have guests I've never met in person, I will try to call them and invite them by phone, not out of any sense that they might be trolls, as you put it, uh, either in the internet sense or the real uh, the fantasy <laughs> sense, but rather that uh, not everyone has a voice for radio. Our longtime listeners will remember a memorable interview in the past year with uh, uh, a distinguished scholar who had a lot of phlegm that day. Oh. It, it didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> we learned a lot, but maybe too much. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad things are, are clear at both ends. Let me start by asking you, what is a weblog, or blog, as the media likes to call it today? This is something most of our listeners probably do know about or they wouldn't be listening to this show online but what exactly is this term clarify it please well it's um, got a definition that's a guaranteed turnoff for everybody and, and it was a turnoff for Mia and actually delayed my experimenting with this uh, format for at least uh, two years and the the clearest definition is also the dullest and that is that it is a uh, online journal of thoughts, ideas, opinions, events, uh, leavened with a good supply of hyperlinks to other sites, to other uh, resources. And, um, <clears throat> of course, like uh, uh, many others, when I heard that description, I pictured um, 
14-year-old uh, wannabe rock guitarists uh, sharing their innermost thoughts with the world and, and just backed off a goodly number of feet before uh, getting more involved. Um, I'm, I think I came into weblogging the way so many people did, which was through some personality or other that I was interested in, maintaining a journal and then linking around and then looking around at those links. And um, uh, I, I began to see the potential in that. Um, it goes much farther than uh, the term journal would indicate, really. Now, your 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 weblog, your blog, which is called Civil War Bookshelf, something you started where you discuss your thoughts on the Civil War. Let me ask you what qualifies you to do this. And let me quote from your your uh, your blog. You, you write. This is a consumer site concerned with product, in quotes, quality, where the product is history, I gather. This is not an academic site, and I am not a teacher, writer, or publisher. So what are you? I, I'm, um, I'm an advanced reader, uh, and you and I share that in common. Uh, you have quite a bit more credentials than that, actually, but uh, there are so many of us uh, who together make up a category of, of advanced reader in a subject, and our needs are not being met on any level um, by the um, general run of literature, let's say, in the area we're interested in. So we're kind of a special needs group, if that's not a loaded term, and our needs may or may not be met by the marketplace or market space we're in, and I, I think in the case of Civil War literature, generally not, although although the situation's improving. Now, l let me address that. The the problem, then, is, is so the literature, the historical literature on the Civil War, uh, in your view, is or has been flawed in some ways and, and could be better. Um, uh, not exactly. I would say that... Um, <clears throat> The, the, our key problem is that Civil War nonfiction uh, is uh, subject to market forces that many other uh, history areas are not subject to. And we have huge waves of um, rather basic readers who are unleashed into our space uh, by trigger events like a hit movie. Uh, say Gettysburg. I, I shouldn't say that's a hit movie, but just a movie with a lot of um, attention and a lot of uh, press by uh, a Ken Burns TV show, basically. And what happens is um, the market immediately springs into action to try to satisfy that kind of visitor to this space. And those of us who visit the Civil War bookshelf in a local store are facing title after title after title that was developed for uh, people who are essentially not even nonfiction readers, steady nonfiction readers, uh, a fairly um, broad mass of people with the most basic information about the Civil War, and who are being catered to by uh, writers operating in a storyteller storytelling medium, which is what uh, mirrors or echoes the medium from which these uh, readers uh, have come. Now, l let me break in on Trump sure, frequently because yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. On the one hand, this differentiates Civil War history from almost any other field of history. If you're writing about the Protestant Reformation, yes, you're pretty a... safe from a, a wave of, of 
beginner and, readers. And that, that's, that's a great example, because if you look at a book written by um, uh, Civil War author Mark Grimsley's colleague Jeffrey Parker, who's at the same, teaching at the same institution, he's written a one-volume history of about Civil War book length or size on the Thirty Years' War. Now, he doesn't have a bunch of people coming from a TV show or um, or a movie to contend with, and so he's dealing with, in a clear way and in a rational way and in a popular way, but he's dealing with levels of complexity that are orders of magnitude more difficult than what we encounter as readers of Civil War literature. So imagine the American Civil War lasting not four or five years, but 30 years. Imagine layers of ecclesiastical politics mixed in there. Imagine um, all sorts of dynastic politics mixed in. And, and then try, try managing all the usual um, elements of war and, uh, and uh, conflict uh, across almost the whole continent there. And, and beyond this, you have Parker's thesis of the military revolution, which has, has shaped the field. Uh, and has people arguing about what happened in the Thirty Years' War. And he's not, I can't present him as a, as a neutral arbiter, and there, there are limits to that sort of thing, because how many, um, how much general discussion can there be about uh, f frameworks for interpreting the Thirty Years' War? Uh, I don't want to slight the field, because I'm not that, that well-versed in it, but they have a different set of problems than we have in Civil War history. Mm -hmm. And, and I think our problem is um, your problem and my problem and the people who are listening to this show have a problem, and that is basically getting a steady supply of satisfying um, literature to read that is, um, addresses us at our level, basically. Now, in one answer to that is, is connected with the, the difference between popular and professional history, or academic history maybe is a better term, which... This also comes up all the time in within history departments. It comes up in connection with the phenomenon of public history, which is part of my job title uh, to teach students who will practice history outside the university. With popular history, you get the kinds of books that you're talking about. Uh, in many cases, people who've read two other books and now they produce a third uh, because it's on a current movie title. In theory, academic history is written by professionals who have been trained in the standards of the craft, who have received credentials showing that they have undergone this training, whose initial works, at least, are, are vetted by other members of the craft. Indeed, anything by a university press is reviewed by other professionals before it's released. So the theory is that if you find a book by a university press uh, with that, that shows substantial references that you are likely to get something that could be satisfying, something from a popular press without that is not going to fill your needs. But you're suggesting that's not enough. Um, yes, and, and I think that's a rough criteria, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest my, uh, all my chips in that because essentially what's at stake is the, the attitude of the publisher and the uh, size of the stick that the author can swing. And it's true that um, in, with the academic presses, first of all, the academic presses are certainly not what they were 40 years ago. There's nobody publishing monographs at a loss. So we're out of, you know, we're out of um, that territory, unfortunately. I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think they are, there are presses that still do that. I, I shouldn't be so broad in my um, comments. I'm thinking sp uh, specifically of um, 
I know that that's, that's the case in certain scientific fields and certain social research. I don't know if that's true in history, but I, let me um, explain my exaggeration in any case, and that oh. is that the academic presses are more bottom line driven than they that's have true. been, and that's a cliche, I understand, but what that translates into, I think, means um, less friendly to end notes and footnotes than they might be, less friendly to the bibliographical as- essay. Um, and uh, on the on the pub publishing uh, pop uh, trade press side, of course, uh, you don't have any friendliness towards endnotes and footnotes and bibliographic essays. They want the story and they want it written well and they want it to be in a form that um, the Hollywood agent can can look at it and say, "There's a great movie in that," and and off we go. Um, the so the the generalization is is not quite accurate. I think it, it depends on depends on the publisher. You had guys like Bennett Cerf a generation ago who would take risks on stuff. Alfred A. Knopf, uh, um, very uh, interesting works coming out of those trade presses uh, aimed at a mass audience. It really depends on on the editor. But generally speaking, what you describe characterizes the general publishing culture. And it does make it difficult for us. I don't know how many grant books have come out this season, but how much is enough? And, you know, here we have Doris Kearns Goodwin coming out with a grant book. And, I mean, a, a, a Lincoln book all of a sudden. And it reminds, it reminded me of the old Isaac Asimov uh, syndrome where he would say, um, I became interested in uh, plant cells, uh, so I decided to write a book about it. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? So, <laughs> but so, so we're, we're uh, captive of these of these uh, market forces, and um, some of them are easy to interpret. I'm going to exploit the movie Cold Mountain by reissuing this novel. Others are, are harder to understand what's going on, and I think, like, for example, the current crop of grant books has got me scratching my head. Um, they just keep coming. And uh, now, On occasion, I'll say sometimes that happens from the way the, the academic press works, which is Often a book is, is a person's dissertation turned into a book for a more mature scholar, just a book they've been working on. Mm-hmm. But the, the gestation period is so long for these books. If you remember, it must have been in the late 90s, a series of Sherman books came out. Yes, uh, yes. One of your guests was actually talking about that and yeah. and, and said that it was um, – was it Keith Poulter? I, I don't remember, but it was – the guest said that it was uh, a nightmare. <laughs> John Marzalek, I think. Oh, Marzalek, yes, of course, yes. And yes. one of the other, he wasn't the one, but another one in his introduction said it was the equivalent, watching these other, as his book was still in press, these other right. books coming out, said it was the equivalent of having a six-shooter emptied chamber by chamber into your Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, That's got to be the feeling. It's and... got to be the feeling. And I'm, I'm working on a Lincoln book, and Doris Prince Goodwin's book doesn't bother me, but the Idiot's Guide to Abraham Lincoln that kind of does bother me. (laughs) Tell me about the bother factor in that. Well, I don't want people who are only going to buy one idiotic book on Lincoln to buy that one and not mine. Oh. Uh, Plus, mine will be much better. Okay. Uh, But one issue is the sales. Uh, Another one is the the intellectual thought. Uh, For the Sherman biographer, you spent all this time writing about Sherman, now maybe the arguments you're about to make that are going to change the field are about to be made by someone else, and you're no longer original. Well, but, you know, uh, and here's where you and I uh, part company, um, essentially, and that is um, 
you know, you, what you say reminds me of something that Mark Grimsley used to allude to more often in his writings and in his blog, and that is um, people are people have that concern in, in the academic community, and I understand that originality and publishing are coin of the realm in that world, but. One reason I publish a blog is for people to steal my ideas. I want the ideas out there. I, if I had a Sherman interpretation, steal that and go for it. Take it. I want that out there because that's what I believe best represents uh, Sherman in, in our ability to understand a historic person in a historic setting. And, and, and I don't think most scholars would disagree with you. It's not, it's not so much a competitive aspect. Uh, it's not a sense that this is a proprietary idea. If you think it's the right idea, you do want it widely shared. Uh, but there is a sense that uh, I guess there's some personal aspect you'd like well, to get I, for being the one who taught. Yeah, it. I mean, there's always the idea that this is pro- this might be the best idea I had in my career, and <laughs> and there it goes. <laughs> you no, know, the, see, I I had an editor when I was working on my Army of the Ohio book uh, when I was expressing some concern about the revisions I was doing. And he said, I don't want this to be the first book on the Army of the Ohio, which it turned out to be the first in 100 years. Oh. But he said, I don't want this to be the first book. I want it to be the best book. Oh. And that kind of editor may not be the most common editor. Uh, it was Lewis Bateman. Uh, but, but Well, and, and let me say this about that. There are some terrific editors out there and uh, doing good work. And then there's a disconnect within the publishing house between that editor and the marketing prowess. Absolutely. At that lets people down, and uh, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking of a, a press in particular, but I'd better not mention them. Well, that's a good idea. Let's stop here before we start yeah. the personal slanders and mudslinging. <laughs> we'll take a little break as the music creeps up. We'll come back in a minute on Civil War Talk Radio with Dmitry Rogoff. We'll talk more about the state of Civil War publishing today, and we'll find out why he's the head of the McCollum Society when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.